that's what makes this job so challenging is um, all of these groups who care so deeply about the institution and they all have to they all have to feel and understand that the president cares about what they care about and um, when you've got a uh, when you can build this really good positive friendly relationship and it can't be a relationship based on just playing golf it has to be a relationship based on we have a shared vision and we like each other and we're helping each other everyone and welcome to this episode of an ingenious you where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers it is no secret that the models of leadership that have worked in higher education for years are no longer adequate for today's highly dynamic and charged environment in fact using these old approaches and models in today's environment can be detrimental i'm very pleased to welcome back to the ingenious you community two seasoned leaders who have experienced these challenges firsthand. Scott Wyatt is the recently appointed Senior Executive Director of Statewide Online Education, where he is focused on statewide innovations and collaborative programs for the Utah system of higher education. Scott comes to this role as a two-time college president, most recently having served at Southern Utah University, where he led a series of transformational changes. Scott is joined by Wallace Pond. Wallace has been a mission-driven educator and leader for over 30 years, including having served as a senior leader in higher education, holding both campus and system level positions, overseeing single and large multi-campus and online institutions in the US and internationally. We will include a link to their impressive bios in the episode show notes. But Scott and Wallace, I have so been looking forward to this conversation and to welcoming you both back to the Ingenious You community. Thanks. We're excited to talk with you today. This is fun. Yeah, Melissa, it's, it's, and it's good to be here with Scott. So let's start with some table setting. You are both keenly aware of the many changes that are happening across the higher ed landscape. Uh, I'd like to, to start by getting your take on which of these changes you view is most significant and what you think the impact is uh, for leaders. Um, I can jump in on that. I, I think one of the most, in terms of how higher education is being delivered and received, I think one of the most interesting things that happen is happening is this huge growth in micro credentials. Uh, I think people, th there will always be a market for those that want to spend five or six years working on a bachelor's degree, but there's just this growing segment of the population that is saying, I'm just not willing to wait that long. I don't have that much money and time. I've got to get something and I've got to get it now. And um, these micro-credentials are focused and competency-based and affordable, and uh, you put them on your resume. And I think that's the most interesting thing that's happening in higher education. Yeah, and I, and I would add to that um, that the thing that's interesting about what Scott's talking about is, I mean, we have obviously huge systemic challenges, whether it's demographics, um, public opinion about higher education, 
um, uh, I mean, there are reasons that that traditional higher education, what we might call, you know, credit bearing degree granting, there's a reason that's declining or shrinking, while other elements of post-secondary education are um, are expanding and growing. But what Scott's talking about is every bit as much of a market shift. It's a buying decision shift as it is a policy issue, um, you know, or something intrinsic to higher education. What we're seeing is that people are just, there are fewer and fewer people for whom that traditional model that, that Scott just that articulated, it's, it's there's fewer people for whom that's a viable uh, return on investment or, or a viable value proposition. Um, and there's a shrinking number of people who can or will make that choice. It's not going anywhere. Um, that will continue to be a big part of the ecosystem. Um, but I, what I find fascinating is this wasn't about government programs. It wasn't about financial incentives. This was just a pure market shift, um, uh, <laughs> which is quite different than some of the shifts we've seen in the past. Yeah, so Wallace, stick with that a second and, and help us understand then what's the impact for a campus leader? So you're the head of an institution, yeah. this shift is happening. What, is, what does that mean for your role as leader and what you're trying to do? Yeah, well, I'll actually speak to like for whom this matters. So there's probably 25, 30% of higher education that can pretty much do what they've been doing or whatever they want to do <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Uh, exclusive, wealthy, powerful, legacy kind of institutions. And, and they can kind of do more or less what they want to do, and they're going to be fine. It's that other 70, 80% that's on a spectrum of risk, um, you know, from, boy, things aren't working like they used to, or we aren't quite as exclusively as we used to, to, uh-oh, we're not going to make payroll <laughs> next quarter. Um, there's that spectrum of risk. And, and for institute, and that's pretty much everyone that doesn't have exclusive enrollment, you know, non-flagship institutions, uh, most of higher ed actually. Um, and, and for those leaders, it's really about, boy, you know, what about my institution is gonna be compelling enough that enough people are gonna choose it <laughs> versus yeah. another option that I'm still gonna be around, you know, yeah. in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And I don't mean like, you know, closing the doors necessarily, but being relevant, you know, being yeah. a player, you know, uh, having the resources to actually do something interesting. So it's not just about closing or merging or whatever. It's about, am I going to matter? Um, and for those leaders, they really have to think carefully about why students would choose them. Um, and, to, and, and, and to Scott's point, it's probably not going to be you know, a, a, a business degree at, you know, Eastern State University, it's, it's going to have to be something else, how it's delivered, what the partners are, the connections to industry, you know, stackable credentials, maybe there's some micro credentials built into degree programs, or maybe there's a whole new revenue model, right, mm -hmm. that that runs through industry, and is mostly micro credentials. But it's going to have to be something very different than it's been over the last four or five decades in order for that big chunk in the middle of higher education to have the kind of future they want to have. Yeah, you're talking about a heightened uh, heightened attention on the value proposition, among other things, which just isn't something that's necessarily been on the radar for a lot of. Well, it hasn't had leaders. to be. 
right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, and it's, I think it's more than the value proposition. I think it's, and I, and I don't really like saying it's all the young people's fault. Mm-hmm. I, I think it moves through society mm-hmm. with everyone, but we're in this, uh, microwave, um, shipping overnight kind of world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the reasons why micro credentials are so attractive is because within a matter of weeks, you have a credential you can put on a resume. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that that's going to shape the way, or it should shape the way we mm-hmm. build our programs in traditional, uh, universities because, um, students who come and spend a year and haven't yet tasted anything of what their major is. Right. Um, I, a, a lot of them are asking, why, why am I here? I, I came to learn how to do X and all I'm getting are electives and general eds. And um, we, we have a school out here um, centered here called BYU uh, Pathway Worldwide. It's a, it's, it's, it's really not a school, but they facilitate programs for the different BYU campuses. Mm-hmm. And all they did was shift GE towards the end. I mean, one yeah. of the things they did was shift GE to the end and workforce certificates at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And they immediately saw an increase in retention. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's really fascinating that mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's our appetite. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great example and and point. So let me let me ask you to go a little deeper in terms of the the question of leadership. You know, you both you both are aware of the increase in recent years of presidential failures, shortened tenures. You know, I think the last I saw, uh, the last statistic on this is uh, that uh, the average president of a college or university is is staying in the job less than four years. Um, how do you make sense of this and what, from your experience, what you see, what gets in the way most often or derails leaders uh, from a long, successful tenure? And I think there are a few things. Um, and it's, I think, a little bit different depending upon what sector of higher education we're talking about. But I think the foundational answer for me, and I'll be interested to see what Scott thinks about this, is that. I think that there is a, a critical mass of leadership in higher education today. I mean, this is changing slowly, but a critical mass that came up through a system that simply did not prepare them at all for the kinds of challenges that they're facing today. Um, economic challenges, marketing challenges, market challenges that we just talked about. Um, they were well trained for status quo leadership. They were not prepared. In fact, in many cases, if you came up through higher education and you were a little bit too innovative, uh, a little bit too much of a risk taker, you got in trouble, right? Um, and there just really wasn't, in, in broadly speaking, there wasn't much of an opportunity if you came up through higher ed to be exposed to, rewarded for, trained to. I mean, think, for example, you know, um, if, if I think one of the most interesting transformations going on right now is at a place called Lindenwood University in Missouri, um, you know, part of their strategic plan is m and I can guarantee you very few provosts that become presidents have, <laughs> have ever had any experience in mergers and acquisitions, right? Um, or for-profit operations, 
um, that are related to the organizations or uh, you know, op experience um, bringing industry-created curriculum, not faculty-created curriculum, and then negotiating that across the institution. So my sense is just fundamentally, it's good people, hardworking people. It's just they they weren't necessarily molded for the challenge that we have today. I, I first want to say something about the maybe four-year tenure for presidents. Um. The job is so consuming. Yeah. It is all day, every day. Yeah. You have to be a lawyer. You have to be in HR. You have to be the very best in in dealing with um, donors and legislators. And, and then a student that comes in with a complaint about equity. And I mean, it is just a constant stream yeah. of things. And then every night, at least for me, um, mm -hmm. Every night and Saturdays, it's it's continuing to work and going to plays or musicals or games to try to be supportive. Right. My my analogy of being a president is it's kind of like having three hundred children and they all want you at their soccer game. <laughs> <laughs> but while you're at that soccer game, another crisis is brewing, and you got to right. figure out how to deal with it. So, so my. I actually think four years is not describing it well because this is a dog's life. Four, four years is like twelve. Yeah. I mean, my I was a president for fourteen years and it felt like a hundred. Was it was beautiful and fun and it was so exhausting. I, yeah. I just don't know how people can do the job for that long. Um, so that's I think that's one of the challenges is the demands have just become so high. That's a really good point, Scott, because it's not just about skills. It's not just about, you know, the operational or market challenges. It's also, um, the to, to your point, um, uh, the physical and emotional and psychological and spiritual demands on, on higher education executives are really um, overwhelming at times. Uh, and there probably is a shorter shelf life, <laughs> you know, for how long you can be in, you know, the eye of the storm, so to speak, um, and still meet expectations and be productive and, and, uh, and just not get burned out um, mm -hmm. in that, in that, you know, fulcrum that, that a lot of presidents are in. Well, give, given that, uh, let me ask you to address the question then of what is it what does it take uh you you both know i direct a doctoral program in higher education i have a few students who want to be presidents so what would you tell them about how to prepare for the kind of role that you are describing what what's it going to take for them to find some joy in the role to be successful are there some specific traits, values, attitudes that yeah. are important now that maybe weren't as important 20 years ago? First of all, I would encourage them to become a president. It is an unbelievably satisfying job. It, um, it's so neat to be able to be um, so much of a benefit to so many people, you know, to help, to help an institution um, serve students. It's just a really delightful job, but it does um, wear you out fast. <laughs> so that was the first thing I would say is, is encourage them um, to keep, to keep at it. But 
Um, but I think everyone needs to recognize that there is no one path of preparation because the job is so varied in scope. Um, and, uh, and it's become um, quite a political and legal job. So I would try to develop some confidence in, in um, legal issues and try to develop um, political skills. Um, those are a couple of things that I would. It's natural that a president understands the academy and understands those kinds of things. Um, and frankly, those are less important because if you've got a good provost, mm -hmm. um, you. But what I see sometimes is presidents want to be like a provost. They they want to stay as provost. Yeah. They want to be the operations person, and mm -hmm. and presidents cannot be operations people. Presidents have to be mm -hmm. something different than that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would add to I, I think I, I think that's accurate. And I also, Scott, you know, some of the most enjoyable times I've ever had was being a college president or university president, even if I was gritting my teeth at different points. <laughs> um, I think one of the sort of foundational differences versus now and, and say the past, uh, Melissa, is I think to be successful it's not about the president's own technical skills or background. Um, it's it's how do they create success through others, right? Um, and it's because no individual has the bandwidth to do all the things that Scott talked about, but they still have to be done, right? Um, and I would also say that for a, a lot of institutions, not all, it really has to be someone who is capable of kind of leading radical departure from the status quo and 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 having the skills to navigate radical departures from the status quo in institutions that culturally don't necessarily support that right or structurally uh support that it's a bit of you know paddling upstream uh at times and in my sense and this is kind of our take at the transformation collaborative is we we have several domains that we think about one domain and i won't go into all the details but one domain is behaviors what do you do how do you behave you know can you embrace risk and ambiguity or do you run from it you know um, do you empower others or do you want to control stuff and i don't think we're in a place now where you can be a micromanager or a control freak um, and make it work um, the other domain is traits you know are you self-aware enough to know <laughs> what people need from you you know what your strengths and weaknesses are what you have to delegate um, can you be courageous and humble at the same time you know because yeah. you know it's it's interesting combinations another domain is skills because at some point you have to do the job right? <laughs> you know, at what level can you lead people? Can you generate revenue? Can you manage change? Um, and then another domain we talk about is values. You know, I, I think these days, there's an expectation from stakeholders, whether it's faculty, staff, students, alumni, you know, partners, that you care about something, that you believe in something, you know, that, uh, you, you know, you care about sustainability or diversity or whatever it is that you care about, right? Um, uh, and, and then the other is outcomes. You know, at the end of the day, some you have to deliver something, right? So, <laughs> you know, are you creating, you know, value 
Are you know, are you growing revenue? Are you making a healthier organization? Or do you have some kind whatever it is, positive social impact? So you can just see by this list, like wow, you know, and 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 I don't expect, we don't think that anyone's all of these things. Right. But it is, if I, from our perspective, it's kind of a different lens to look at what matters today versus what of my, what might have mattered even 15, 20 years ago. I think that the most important thing that I did as a president in the early days was amassing a really good team. I think Absolutely. that's probably yeah. the foremost important yep. thing. And in doing that, um, the president has got to be self-confident enough. Mm -hmm that every single member of her or his team is better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you've got to get people that are better than you in all of the areas that they're responsible for. You have to be able to trust them mm -hmm. and you have to understand what they're doing just well enough so that you can lead. And that's what yeah. makes success through others possible, Scott, because if you don't, if you don't do that part, <laughs> then you're going to be really hamstrung, right? Yeah. In, in, in terms of achieving that success through others. Yeah, those are such good points. It, although, as you say, that does require a lot of self-confidence. It requires being able to put your ego to the side. Yes. And in terms of those things I've seen derail presidents, the inability to do that is yeah. one of the big, the big mm -hmm. things, uh, it seems like. So, um, you know, Wallace, I know you're a big believer in coaching, the value yeah. of coaching. And mm -hmm. I, I, I have seen uh, or I've heard uh, a number of presidents now talk about the fact that that their boards are uh, supporting coaching for them for just the reason that Scott talked about the exhaustion that can quickly overcome. It, can you say can you say a few words about about that? Yeah, uh, and I would and I want to take it just a step back first, and I'm sure Scott has some thoughts about boards and regions and stuff too. Is is I talked about radical departures from the status quo. Um, the, the typical governance structure in higher education also rarely supports that easily. Um, uh, and whether you're public or private or what sector you're in, you know, uh, the, the way that governance was initially sort of built out in higher education and broadly continues um, <clears throat> sometimes can be an asset or it can be a barrier. To, to, you know, to really thinking differently or transform. And I'm, I'm curious to how sort of Scott navigated <laughs> that whole world. Um, but, but in terms of the coaching question, I think one of the reasons that, that boards are starting to be more amenable to things like that is because they're recognizing, wow, you know, what we're asking this gal or guy to do <laughs> um, or what we're expecting to happen or what other stakeholders are expecting to happen is really kind of heroic stuff, you know, Herculean stuff at times. Um, and uh, whether it is mental health, coaching, um, uh, support for wellness, um, there are a number of boards that are beginning to see, you know, if we want this guy or gal to be here more than four years without like self imploding or immolating in, in a meeting, <laughs> there's going to have to be some support systems uh, to make that possible. It can't be, you know, the all, you know, the bulletproof, everything on the one person model that's kind of been expected in the past. In an era of heightened disruption and revolutionary changes, 
Many education experts, educators, and families are calling for change in our pre-K through grade 12 schools. At Bay Path University, we are meeting this need by teaching our doctoral students how to reimagine organizations, make tough decisions, and re-examine traditional ways of doing business. Our EDD Transformative School Leadership Program is designed for pre-K through grade 12 educators, related professionals, and school and district leaders who want to advance in their career to many senior level leadership positions and or seek faculty positions to prepare the next generation of school leaders and educators. Delivered in a completely online format with one immersive weekend workshop per year held on Bay Path's Longmeadow campus, the 56 credit program provides flexibility along with access to a dynamic online community of peers and faculty. There is a 30 credit all but dissertation program completion option. And for those who hold an EDS degree or CAG certificate, a 36 credit completion program option is available. If you have a true passion for ensuring quality education for all learners, find it exciting to navigate change and initiate transformation in our pre-K through grade 12 schools, please visit our website at baypath.edu edd for more information about this exciting program and joining our fall cohort. Scott, uh, to, to Wallace's question about the role of the board, um, and you've managed boards uh, for a long time in two presidencies, uh, any thoughts about, about the role of the board in supporting leadership? Uh, and, and maybe what, what does a good partnership look like? And yeah. what do you do if you don't have that and you're sitting in the president's seat? I think that the board has a variety of things that they're most responsible for, the fiduciary duties, um, you know, to make sure that things are operating well. But one of the leading tasks of a board has to be to support the president in all of the things that need to be done at an institution. Mm -hmm. So if the board isn't willing to take a couple arrows and um, have clear support for what's going on, it's very difficult um, to do anything creative. It's almost almost impossible. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, Scott. And I, and I would say that um, this idea of taking a couple of arrow, arrows the the, the the political push and pull and the and the different needs of stakeholders are so vast and so diverse um, that in the absence of that board support it, it's not only difficult it's almost impossible because as, as a president you are going to take hits and you are going to have people who deeply challenge your agenda right uh, passionately challenge your agenda <laughs> and, and and if you don't have uh, that support system and a little bit of a buffer right um provided by the board and if people don't understand that the board is going to support you as you take risks they'll smell that out <laughs> mm -hmm. right once um, <laughs> once they see weakness yeah. in the board they'll go yeah. for it yeah I, i've seen that happen and it's unfortunate yeah. The, the board so, might be committed to this, might not be committed to this. Therefore, right. I'm going to attack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the reality is boards are volunteers. Uh, they're groups of volunteers with limited time. They don't live the reality 
of what's happening on the campus day in and day out. They swoop in, they swoop out. And what I've seen is just, uh, 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 it's a real challenge to keep boards focused on the really important work, um, particularly if you are in a, in a setting where um, the constituents are deeply involved in the life of the campus. So if it's a church-related institution, if it is uh, you know, a, a college in a community where the board members come from the community, mm -hmm. uh, the, the temptation for overreach on the part right. of the board, because people can get to them, is really, <laughs> really risky, right? Yeah. And you said something really important, Melissa, you, you know, you talked about, you asked Scott about his experiences managing the board, right? <laughs> because, because boards may supervise presidents, but but successful presidents really do manage boards. Um, and, and I think the way you said that was appropriate, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's an active proposition, right? On the part of, of the president, you know, to actively manage that group. And in the absence of that, um, uh, or I think, let me rephrase that, um, the, the better presidents are at managing boards, I think the better boards are in supporting presidents and staying focused. Right. And not getting, you know, out of their lane, so to speak, misunderstanding governance issues um, uh, and, and, or getting distracted. Um, and most people don't think that's a, you know, a president job, but it really is. Well, so can 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 the two of you unpack that a little bit more? If you're a new president, uh, what are some of the things you should be doing to build that relationship so that you can effectively manage manage the board? People support people they like. Mm -hmm. we're willing to have more grace for those that we think are sincere working hard that we have a relationship yeah. with um I, i've seen a lot of people who have you know all in helped a candidate who's running for public office and the only reason is because they have a close relationship with the person not yeah. because they believe in the principles mm -hmm. that's particularly evident in smaller communities because we want to have this relationship. So I think that the first answer is, is you just have to build um, to the extent possible, some kind of a mm -hmm. close, friendly relationship and show the board that you really care about them. You care about what they're interested in. Um, you want to carry out their vision. Um, and you have to be able to find a way to let the faculty know you care about them. And and their vision and their hopes and their dreams in the community. That's that's what makes this job so challenging is um, all of these groups who care so deeply about the institution and they all have to, they all have to feel and understand that the president cares about what they care about. And um, um, when you've got a, uh, when you can build this really good, positive, friendly relationship. And it can't be a relationship based on just playing golf. It has to be a relationship based on right. we have a shared vision and we like each other and we're helping each other. It's a great segue too to my next mm -hmm. question, which, which really is to ask you to reflect on what you have learned from your experience in leading uh, universities in high change environments. You are both change agents and you've both instituted a lot of change in your respective roles. So what, what are your top learnings, takeaways 
Get up every morning and read Churchill speeches. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't have something. I don't have something go silently into the dark. <laughs> I don't have something as pithy as that, Scott. Um, uh, but but I would say you know one of my big takeaways is, and this is I, you know it, and I did not know this initially, Melissa. I mean I I I've led you know three or four pretty substantial. I would say at least modestly transformational change efforts in higher education. And I didn't realize initially the extent to which it's an actively managed process. Like mm. it's not something that just happens because you have a great idea, <laughs> right? I mean, you the, the whole notion of change management is, I mean, like anything you do, we, we wouldn't, you know, launch a new school at the college and just say, hope it works because it's a good idea. We would actively manage it. Right. Um, we wouldn't, you know, make strategic commitments that we would just then walk away from. But sometimes we don't think about that with change. Mm -hmm. We just somehow see it differently. So I, one thing I would say is it has to be really actively managed and committed to. And the second thing I would say is change is a lot harder for people than I thought it was. Mm. Um, and so and so the emotional part of it, you know, the um, if, if you're going to take, you know, 300 or 3000 people through some you're going to if you're going to change their lives, this is not small stuff for them. This is big stuff for them. And a lot of them are highly invested in the past, in the status quo, why they came there, what what how they want to bring value, what they know how to do, what they're good at. Um, and just the emotional and psychological realities of change, I, I get it now, <laughs> but, you know, many years ago, I just didn't get how hard it was for people and how much, how much compassion and direct kind of personal support has to go into that effort. Wow, that's, that's a really important insight. And I, I don't know, I'm sure you're both familiar with the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been out for a long, long time. But yeah. I remember in reading that and thinking, oh, my gosh, I get it. I, I on a personal level, I get why right. change and I'm I'm very change oriented, but I don't like change, yeah. uh, you know, when somebody's moving my cheese necessarily. Uh, so that's a really profound, important point in, in terms of managing. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I don't I don't think uh, in higher ed, we typically enter into these sorts of efforts with an intentional plan. So what, what do you mean by managing change? You know, is there, is there, is there one or two things a leader well, needs to have on the radar? What I have found is that, um, and I wish I could start all my presidencies over again. <laughs> I, Great point, I yes. That, I think that the learning that I have gained from this has been such a life transformation for me. Yeah. Um, but. When you start out as president, it's helpful to know that 20% of your employees despise you just because of your title and because of your position of authority, and they don't like it. And if you're doing really well, it'll stay at 20%. And if you're not doing so well, it grows. Um, what that means is, is that any innovation that comes from the top down, from the president down, is going to immediately have resistance from a certain group, whether it's a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, 
one thing that I have learned is that if I've got some change that I want to implement that's really important to me, the best solution is to find significant people on campus and get them to think that it's their idea and then support them in their initiative. So this isn't really my initiative. This is the faculty's initiative. And what this does is two things. One, it, it shifts the initiative to somebody you can support, um, which is really, um, really important. And the second one is, is that as the leader of the organization, you're not taking credit for things that, that you can give it away to someone else. So um, I just, I just really, I, I, we've had a lot of discussions about this um, in my past jobs and how do we make the initiative appear to be somebody else's? Mm -hmm. How do we give away the credit for what we're trying to do? I have developed over time, Melissa, some fairly um, comprehensive models for change management that have lots of pieces. I, I won't go into just, just that I've learned that I've just added and built it out. But I would say it has to be just really purposeful. It can't be casual. You know, um, there's a the the, I'm, the the way of the peaceful warrior, Dan Millman. He has a quote where he says, "The secret of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting for the old, but building the new." Right. Mm -hmm. So, to Scott's point, how do you get people to that place where where they're willing to give up fighting for the old? and building the new you know what's their excitement what's what's in it for them mm -hmm. um how what's the benefit um of the change um and and that's not technical stuff that's that's how do you communicate that how do you you know get people to that place and then there are lots of tiny you know you know operational things that can help with that um but it's so much about what do people think about the change <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do they believe about it? Um, and even then, to Scott's point, you know, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a spectrum of, you know, early adopters and innovators all the way to saboteurs <laughs> on mm -hmm. the other end. Right. And that's just the deal. Um, yeah. And you just have to manage that. Let me add something to this that I think is important. And Wallace, what you just said prompted this thought for me, and that is. You know, when I was trying to build online programs at my most recent school, um, with a lot of resistance yeah. um, from faculty who, mm -hmm. who spent their whole lives and invested their fortunes yeah. in becoming a face-to-face -face instructor, and they were scared that I might say, you can't do that anymore. It's what they right. love. Right. No matter how I said it, you know, it's just hard to feel comfortable. So what I, what I tried to do was explain as well as I could that this is healthy for the institution, that it's diversifying our portfolio, that, I mean, I just had this long list. And eventually I realized no one cared. They were all public employees. They all believed their jobs were secure. They all knew that things were okay. In their minds, they thought they were okay. It wasn't until I realized that I've got to stop talking about my values because I don't have enough time to convince them to share right. my values. Right. It was funny that even the business college wasn't interested in the business of the school <laughs> because they were interested in teaching. Right. So 
um, as soon as I shifted my conversation from my values that I thought everyone should share to their values, yep. everything changed. When I went from online education is about developing a broader portfolio, making things more secure, bringing in more resources so I can give you more salary increases. When I shifted from that to this is an equity, inclusion, and diversity initiative where we're trying to help people who otherwise can't get to our campus. Everything changed. I, mm -hmm. I had one faculty member say to me, I think I might be willing to do an online program, but the students would have to come to campus for at least a couple of weeks in the summer. And I said, why would you deny a single mother of three who's waiting tables in a rural community two hours from here the opportunity to get your program. Why would you deny her that opportunity? You know she can't afford a hotel for two weeks. You know she can't afford a babysitter for two weeks. You know she can't afford to leave her job for two weeks. So why would you deny her that opportunity? It was like an explosion occurred in his head. I left my values and went to his. Now, these were my values too. But, but change has to be led from, from successfully communicating how this helps you Right. satisfy your values, not me satisfy mine. That, that's, I think, is the first step is mm -hmm. the first and most important step of change. We just have a few minutes left and uh, I, we could go on all day. Um, so maybe <laughs> we'll have to have a part two, but, uh, but for today, I've got just a couple of mm -hmm. uh, final questions I want to pose. One is to get your ideas, your thoughts on how to identify, how to bring more of the kinds of leaders that we need into colleges and universities, how to get them into the pipeline. Any thoughts on that? The, the reason why I became interested in becoming a university president was because the university president showed interest in me as a student. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's a good way to do it. I. I had a little book club and invited any students to join. I, I think it's helpful to find opportunities to, to spend time with students and spend time with um, faculty and staff and um, help them see that you enjoy the job and the good that can be done in the job. I think that's, I think that's one method. Yeah, and I would also say, Melissa, and I think this is happening more. I mean, we're seeing it more. You know, I don't know. I don't have the data on this, but if I had to guess, I would say probably, you know, 75 to 85% of college presidents in traditional higher education, I mean, you know, credit bearing degree granting institutions, um, uh, were hired from within um, higher education. Maybe 15, 20% would be outside of higher education. And I'm not advocating, you know, this notion that higher education is a business, go hire business people. That's way oversimplified. Um, but I think there are skill sets in people who also have a frame of reference, who have a mission focus, who have a motivation that can really, really be powerful. Earlier in the, in the call, I talked about Lindenwood University. Um, you know, their current president did 33 years at IBM. Really interesting guy. Uh, came out of Dubai when they hired him. Mm -hmm. But they didn't hire him just because he, he had deep PL and MA and innovation and all of that. He was also a board member at a college 
He was finishing his doctorate in education. He really cared, right? Yeah. He wanted to do this work. Um, and boy, what an amazing combination if you can tap into something like that. So I would say just just from just just the practical, just the the mathematics <laughs> of finding, of identifying candidates. Um, the, the current search process is not particularly effective. In fact, sometimes it actually filters out and eliminates the most mm -hmm. dynamic candidates. Um, and so a big part of getting people into the roles um, that can maybe have a different perspective is to be willing to look outside of higher education, not blindly, but being able to look outside of higher education for those kinds of combinations. Um, and I think that brings a new energy, a new perspective, uh, certainly skill sets. Um, and I think that's one place or one way to think about it. Yeah, great, great perspective. So uh, last question. Uh, this is an easy question. It's our signature <laughs> question uh, that we ask of every guest and we switch it up. So I don't think you've answered this question before, okay. but um, so as you think about all the innovations, all the changes, all the new ideas that are popping out there uh, in higher ed, uh, is there one that has captured your interest or attention that you look at and say, oh yeah, that's, that's really um, something that's gonna be critical for going forward. And Scott, you actually started us, started us off by talking about micro-credentials. So I know you're excited about micro-credentials, but <laughs> maybe there's another another innovation that you can identify as your closing, uh, your closing thought. Yeah, I would I would say this. We um, we keep trying to fix the student. Mm -hmm. And we need to start trying to fix the university. Mm -hmm. um, the I, I can just think of a whole lot of examples, but we've got to be student centric. Mm -hmm. What is it that the student wants? And I, what I, anyway, that's, um, for example, at all of my schools, the seniors got to register first and then juniors and then sophomores and then freshmen. So we take the most vulnerable students and make them register less. That's stupid. <laughs> I mean, what organization has that kind of front door? Yeah. Um, the seniors don't need to register first. They're getting their senior classes and there's no competition. So all it is that the seniors are getting the general education classes first and leaving the freshmen with the worst. And I think if a senior waits till the last semester, then the senior should get the, the last pick of general ed classes. It's not going to change whether he or she graduates. I just think we need to, you know, create more, just a much better front door. And it's And it's not by putting these patch programs on it's by fundamentally making the experience better for the students so that's one of the things that i would do is i would mm -hmm. i would um make the educational experience in the first year better my sense is that for a lot of institutions to survive and thrive and for instance and for students to feel comfortable making choices to enroll right in degree granting institutions um that it's going to have to be a much better deal for the student, right? It's gonna to have to make much more sense in really practical ways. There are always gonna be students who will have the resources to go wherever they want to find themselves, to spend five years 
you know, getting a, uh, a liberal arts degree, that's wonderful and fine and good for society. And that's not going to go anywhere. But that's a minority, a growing minority, a shrinking minority, or a sh it's an increasing potential a percent of the population falls into that, right? Fewer people can do that. So there's, a, there's an institution called um, Aviation Institute. Okay. Um, and it's just really amazing Basically, all of their curriculum now comes out of industry first versus being faculty create, you know, created and then industry verified. Um, and they have industry as third party payers. I mean, Piedmont, Delta, United are paying the tuition for their students. Now, yes, this is very vocational. Um, and they also they prioritize women um, and, uh, and 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 uh, students of color. Um, when it comes to uh, tuition grants um, and, you know, the, the, the employers are on site in the institution and the students are on site, you know, in internships and apprenticeships with the employers. Um, and it, it's not it's not like we never thought of this before. <laughs> it's just I've never seen it implemented at this level. Right. And in fact, the AIM campus in Chicago actually gave their it's a for-profit career college but they gave their curriculum to the to the community college for free mm. and and teach the community college students at the community college price just so they can also get access i would say it this way 39 million americans started college in the last yeah. 20 years and Dropped didn't complete a credential yeah mm. um so I would, and it almost sounds self-defeatist to say this, but but I think that we need to make an assumption that a significant number, if not a majority of our students are not going to finish. Mm -hmm. And if we make that assumption, we then ask ourselves the question, if the student only comes to college for one year, what would we want that student to get? I don't ever hear anybody asking that question because yeah. we, we think that that's self-defeatist. No, we're, we're not going to assume failure. But but the truth is the majority of them do go for less than a year. Um, so what would we give them? We wouldn't give them random general education and electives. We would give right. them something that made them feel like they were advancing mm -hmm. towards their goals. Um, in the way that they see them advancing towards goals, not in the way that we see them advancing towards goals. So that would be, that's what's on my mind the most is um, what, assuming that they're going to drop out, what would we want them to take with them if they were only there for a semester or for a year? And the better we can answer that question, the more likely the student's going to stay. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P. 
where you will find information about our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Thank you.